Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so make sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Daniel Westcott, who is a forensic anthropologist and the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center in Texas State in the United States. Dr. Westcott shares his knowledge and experience working and researching in this fascinating field. He explains how this research helps us to understand what happens to the human body after death, and in particular how it relates to missing persons, natural disasters and crime. Okay, so today I'd like to welcome as my guest Dr. Danny Westcott, who is the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center in Texas State in the USA. He's also a professor of anthropology at Texas State University. So thank you so much uh, for joining me this morning. Yes, thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Dr. Westcott, the first thing that I ask all my guests is what is your first recollection or memory? or experience of death? My first kind of that I really remember was my grandfather on my mother's side um, and um, was actually one of those kind of unusual things where I woke up in the middle of the night um, and then went up to upstairs and my mom was in the living room crying and I actually kind of knew why. So it was quite, uh, quite a, you were quite young. I was maybe, yeah, maybe 10 years old, if I remember right. Okay. So now you're involved with forensic anthropology. So what does that mean exactly, and how is it different to anthropology that studies humanity and society and so forth? What makes forensic and anthropology unique? Okay, so at least in the United States, forensic anthropology is um, associated with what's called biological anthropology. So we focus on the biology side um, more than the, the cultural society side of, of anthropology, although we do get involved in that to some extent. And so forensic anthropology is really kind of the application of methods and theory and understanding human variation, skeletal variation especially, and archaeological techniques to help answer medical legal questions. So where did your interest in this field come from? So for me, I've always been interested in in bones, especially, but I, I never really did anything about it until I decided to go to uh, college. And when I did, I uh, was taking uh, anthropology class. And so I would come a little bit early to class and I would hang out in the anthropology library it was associated with the department and study. And one day, one of the uh, professors came in and said, you know, we have some skeletal remains that are coming in and would be anybody be interested in working on them with me? So I jumped at the chance and kind of been doing it ever since. 
And so you're, you have some specific areas of interest? Uh, well, I mean, you mean right now or then? Yeah. Or I guess through your, through your research career in, in forensic anthropology, are there specific areas that you prefer to work in or have greater interest in? Yeah. So I'm, well, actually, so I'm interested in a lot of different aspects. I'm kind of a, a strange bird in anthropology in that way. in the fact that, or even in academia that I, I, I'm interested in a lot of different aspects. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, bone biomechanics and how the bones respond to mechanical forces that you place on them. And how and can we use that to understand what people were, what kind of activities people were doing and you know, reconstruct their life events a little bit more. The other kind of area that I'm really interested in is uh, decomposition research or taphonomy, which is kind of interpreting what happens to uh, a person after they die until they're discovered. So all the processes that would go into that, and then using that understanding to be able to find clandestine remains or detect clandestine remains. So forensic anthropology then would utilize both historical. So if you're if you found bones that you're identifying then as, you know, perhaps hundreds or thousands of years old. So you're using that the same sort of techniques for that as you would for, say, finding a body after a natural disaster, or is it the same sort of techniques? It's the same techniques, it's just at maybe a different time scale. So taphonomy is literally what happens to a living, once living organism from the date that it is dies till it's discovered. And originally, the, the original definition of this is from the biosphere to the lithosphere. So from, from a living organism to a rock. So it was associated with fossils. And so, you know, but the same processes are, are happening. And so in forensic anthropology, we're just looking at the really early processes. And then in, if you're looking at paleoanthropology or looking at fossil remains, you're looking at, um, you know, a lot longer period of, of that taphonomic record. And so tell me about the Forensic Anthropology Center. How long has that been around? And uh, what was the motivation behind starting something like a Forensic Anthropology Center? All right. So uh, our center has been around since 2008. And really the idea behind it was, um, you know, the, the, the original uh, facility was started by uh, Dr. Bass at the University of Tennessee. And one of the things that we know is that there can be a lot of differences uh, in the way that bodies decompose depending on, you know, the, the local environment. So that was one of the motivations behind this. Um, and is to, to be able to compare what we're doing with the University of Tennessee to get a better idea of some of the factors that, have, that are affecting the decomposition rates, especially. And then, um, of course, the other thing, too, is that, you know, one of the things that we benefit from with these kind of uh, facilities is, is that we also, once the individual is done decomposing, we utilize the skeletons for research. And so it builds a, a large reference skeleton collection. And so how has the um, the study or the research changed in the last sort of 10, 10, 15 years, particularly, I guess, in terms of the use of new technology and, and those sorts of things? Well, it's changed dramatically in the use of, especially the use of new technology. So like I was just, like I was saying, as far as like detection 
of clandestine remains. So the typically the way that, you know, has been done in the past is if there was a body that was missing and and the law enforcement had some idea of where that individual might be, you would bring out a big crew and they would, you know, walk the fields or whatever they could do to try to find the remains. So for us now, what we can do is use a small little drone that can be flown pretty easily over large areas and we can use different sensors on that drone. So not only looking at like just the normal visual or visual spectrum camera that, you know, you kind of think of, but we can use like near infrared or infrared or uh, some other spectrum and get a look at look at images that might uh, help a lot with that. For example, especially early in the morning, uh, the if you have a decomposing body underground, a lot of times it'll be warmer than the surrounding soils. And so it can be picked up near infrared. So these are new technologies that have allowed for expediting searches that would have been before would have been available before. And then even the information that we do on like estimating the postmortem interval, a lot of that is very dependent on understanding bacterial processes and be able to identify those bacteria and how those bacteria change through time, understanding the relationship between insects and the bacteria. And all that is relatively new technology. So at at your facility, is it the type of facility where people can donate their bodies for this type of research? Yes. So all of the donations that we receive are people that donate their bodies specifically to us. And so we we receive bodies two different ways. One is a pre-registration. So we, we refer to these people as our living donors. So these are people that sign up while they are alive and they make it they uh, explicit that they want to donate to us. They fill out all the paperwork. Then upon their death, their families contact us, and we would then make arrangements to have their bodies picked up and utilized in research. The other way is for the next of kin donations. So this is where the living next of kin can donate the remains. And our only criteria there is they can't be individuals that have been where they haven't had any contact with a family member, for example. We, because what we want are people that wanted to donate their bodies. So in most of the cases in these, it's individuals that wanted to donate to us, but just never got around to fill out the paperwork before they died. Or they actually may have signed up for another program for like uh, a medical school to be in an anatomy program. But upon their death, they didn't meet the criteria and the family has decided that it was more important to them to donate their bodies to science than to go specifically to that program. It's really interesting that people would donate their bodies to this type of thing. I mean, I'd never heard of it until until fairly recently. I'm interested in how you engage, you know, with the public in terms of encouraging people or inviting people uh, to consider this after death. What sort of things do you need to consider? Okay, so for us, what we do is things like your podcast. So we talk about what we do and 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 what it can do. You know what can be done with with those uh, by the donations. Um, and so, as you can imagine, a lot of our donors are people that uh, were in the education field, so they want to continue to educate you know, people. Uh, we also get a lot of individuals that donate that were previously in law enforcement, and they understand the benefits of the the donations and what can be, uh, you know, the knowledge that can be acquired. So those are some of the driving forces. 
We also, it turns out that a lot of our living donors will actually do it because uh, it's a cheaper uh, alternative to, uh, you know, a traditional funeral and burial. Uh, we also, in, in Texas, we actually have a large community of people that are really interested in green burials. And so this is a, you know, a very green method of disposing of your body. Indeed, <laughs> that's correct. All right. So as a result of the, the research that you do, how do you think that impacts on, uh, I guess, response to things like crime or unexpected death or even a natural disaster? Because I imagine that this would have quite a significant influence on how countries and communities respond to all of these things. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, it's greatly improved our understanding of, you know, the rates of decomposition and, uh, you know, other processes associated with that. Uh, and then also being able to help identify the individuals once they are uh, recovered. And so this has affected, if you're looking at like mass disaster, how do you plan for, um, you know, triaging the individuals, um, getting uh, as much information as necessary for, you know, depending on what, what has happened. You know, in crime scenes, it, it really helps us be able to interpret that crime scene better to get an idea of, you know, when the crime may have occurred. And, you know, this benefits both the people that are being accused and the, and the potential families of, of the victims. Because at least from my perspective, we're just as concerned about if if the person who is suspected of doing the crime couldn't have been available during that time, then that is leading towards the justice. On one level, it sounds simple. You know, we watch uh, the decomposition of a body or, or those sorts of things, but I imagine it's much more complex and technical than that. You know, what sort of complexities exist in terms of this type of work and this type of research? Well, I mean, part of it is, is that there are just so many variables that could affect the decomposition. And that includes things like most of your listeners probably have heard recently of the microbiome. And so you have this bacteria, you know, in different flora in your in your gut. And this affects your 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 life. It affects, you know, your weight, it affects your moods, it affects a lot of different things. And my guess is, is that when as we are progress through this, we're gonna find that it has actually has a big effect on the way that you decompose. But then, you know, all of these, there's all these factors that go into it. And really, the only way to understand their their effect is to isolate certain factors and study that and then isolate other factors and, and study those and then do some combinations of how, how do things work. So like, for example, you know, we know that for now that, um, you know, like flies who are the, the, the larvae are associated with a lot of the loss of mass uh, during decomposition are actually attracted to the body by the bacteria that's already on your body. And so they have this relationship. And then the other things that are happening is that, you know, your, your uh, human body as it decomposes is acting as this really short-lived but nutrient-rich uh, ecosystem that you have lots of different things competing over. And also, interacting with each other to uh, to utilize these resources before they um, disappear. So in some cases, like said, with the flies and the bacteria, you actually have this kind of symbiotic relationship. And in other cases, they're, they're actually trying to compete against each other. So especially larger scavengers, well, often, you know, the uh, larger scavengers are trying to 
get that resource as fast as it can. Are you finding that um, as a field of interest that it's popular or is it difficult to find candidates to come and join you in your research? Uh, it is very popular. We don't have too much problem. We actually have people from all over the world that come and do research with us. Um, so it's um, not not that hard to find people. They're, they're pretty interested in it. <laughs> That's good. And I believe there are other similar facilities as yours in other places around the world. I believe we even have one here in, in Australia now. Yes, we have one in Australia. There is uh, one in Canada. There is one in the Netherlands. And then there are currently, I believe, seven in the United States. So what do you think your research, I mean, you've been involved with this type of research for quite a long time. What has it told you about how society has changed? Gleaned any ideas around that just from your own perspective and your own insight? Um, you know, so this is one of those things that's always kind of hard to, to understand completely because it's kind of like politics, and that is, is that you wind up hanging around with people that have similar perspectives. But, it, you know, it seems to me like there is before the kind of a taboo against death and dying. And that seems to me to be, it's still present, but maybe, maybe not as um, prominent as it was before. And, you know, that people understand that other people have different ideas of what should happen to their bodies and that, that they're more likely to respect this. I think that, you know, that even just, you know, thinking about since the facility started at the University of Tennessee is that there seems to be much more of an acceptance uh, that, you know, this kind of research is important and that people, uh, when they die, they, that's kind of their choice is to make that decision. Uh, it's what happens to their body. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't want people that aren't interested in this kind of research, but I think that it's become more well accepted over time. Well, I think there's enormous value, isn't it, in finding out uh, if we can find answers to certain questions through this type of research, then that must benefit not only individuals in terms of perhaps individuals that have died, but their families and I, you know, their communities. If we have answers and information, then people can get some comfort out of that. Right. I mean, it's going to help bring closures to the families. In a lot of cases, especially when I first started in anthropology, you would have an unidentified skeleton, and the person may never be identified, which means that this is a person that the uh, family of that individual just had no idea what happened. And so by understanding, you know, and being able to identify them easier, uh, you know, this is one of the advantages of DNA technologies is that you've been able to identify a lot of people that that have been dead for 20 or 30 years that their families just had no idea what happened to them. Uh, so it brings closure to the families. Uh, this, you know, same idea, uh, you know, in, in the United States, we also apply this to uh, migrants that come across the, uh, the border and die and their families have no idea what happened to them. And so it actually reaches out to the whole um, group of individuals associated with it. And so uh, the other thing I'm interested in is how you uh, determine, I mean, I don't know the language, you know, this is not my field, so I, my apologies if I, if I don't use the correct terminology, but how do you decide how you're going to, particularly in terms of um, the donors, how you're going to determine 
what type of research you're going to do because I imagine there's sort of a lot of different ways that you can research, you know, human bodies after death. So how do you decide that process? Okay. So um, as far as the individual donor, it really depends on when we accept, when we receive them and the the current research at the time. So do they fit the protocol for a specific research project? And if they do, then they get, you know, placed into that that research protocol. So for example, it may be that, you know, there's a certain uh, weight requirement or a certain, you know, that they can't be autopsied or uh, they can't have had chemotherapy or something like that. And so depending on the study, as far as the specific studies go, they can become from a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of them are actually driven by, you know, the, the medical legal community. And, the, you know, so if you have, uh, you know, you may re- repro- try to reproduce uh, some specific event that occurred. Uh, that may mm-hmm. be one way of doing it. It may be that you're interested in a new methodology, and you, but you need to test out how does the decomposition process affect the results of this. Uh, you know, so one of the things, for example, is that we utilize a lot is what's called stable isotope analysis, and you could use it for you know different tissues like hair and teeth and bones, and they give you a little bit different information. But we're also interested is, does the decomposition process, especially being buried, uh, affect those stable isotopes? So it could be some kind of research like that. Uh, it could be, there again, driven by something kind of like the uh, International Commission of Missing Persons and trying to reproduce some kind of mass grave situation. Or it could be, like I said, just doing new, new techniques and how those techniques will help assist us using different things like, uh, you know, will soil analysis, will the, the, the chemistry of the soil help us estimate the postmortem interval? Will they help us identify the individual? All those kind of things are what drive the, the research. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of really smart people out there that are constantly trying to come up with these new ideas. And, um, and I suspect, you know, the majority of people don't realize that this sort of work is going on. I mean, our, our gauge, of course, is the you know, the television shows that work around forensic science and forensic pathology and these sorts of things. But it's such an er- an interesting uh, area of work that's being done. And I imagine the, you know, both the short-term and the long-term benefit is is actually quite significant, um, both for individuals and, and, as I said, for families and, and communities. So where do you see the future of f- forensic anthropology going? Well, you know, forensic anthropology has changed a lot just in my time. You know, it used to be that forensic anthropologists were mostly interested in the identification of the individuals, uh, especially in a medical legal case. And, you know, now with DNA technology, rarely would you have a, a you know, a medical legal case that the individual is not positively identified. And so forensic anthropologists now focus much more on how long has that person been dead and what kind of trauma did they receive? And can we can reconstruct that? My my guess is is that that is going to continue uh, the trauma analysis, especially and get more refined into the way that we can answer those questions. The postmortem interval, I think, is also going to be one of those things that we are going to really soon have a way of of becoming more accurate and more precise, or knowing that we can't be 
that precise, which is also important. I think a lot of that research is actually going to come by having these multidisciplinary research groups. Um, I think, the, like I said, the microbiome is going to be one of the really important things is understanding the individual while they were alive and how that might affect how they decompose. And if somebody's interested in this field, like, do they need to study medicine first or what, what sort of, you know, qualifications or what sort of background does one need in order to get into the field of forensic anthropology? Uh, well, they don't have to study medicine, but the, the more uh, general uh, science they have, the better. So, you know, know have, knowing your you know, having organic chemistry, uh, physics, and a lot of biology background helps. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a fascinating, fascinating field. (laughs) All right, well, look, we're just about out of time, uh, Dr. Westcott. I really do uh, appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your very busy schedule to speak with me today. I'm very interested in uh, in the the nature of how we can utilize the, the body after death, and uh, and this has been a very interesting way of of hearing about that. So thank you so much. I wish you all the very best in your uh, ongoing work, and uh, and yeah, hopefully we we might catch up again at some point in the future. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate it, and I hope this is helpful for your listeners. So please join me in our next episode of What About Death, where I speak with Dr. Hannah Gould from the University of Melbourne, who tells us about her research into the movement towards more natural burials. Also, how the digital world opens death up to greater creativity. I look forward to you joining me then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.